Before we look at God's word, let us speak with him again and ask for his assistance. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great privilege it is to have your word. We thank you for the way that you have given it to us in uh, the English language, in the common tongue, so that we can understand it, that we have your very word before us and that we can comprehend it by your help. We ask for your help this morning. We ask that you will help us to be true to your word, not to say anything that is false from it, not to get some false misunderstanding, but that what we learn may be true and from your very hand. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, getting your car licence is a very important development for most people in their lives. It is one of those things that you look forward to as you're growing up and because it gives you certain benefits, doesn't it? You're now able to travel much further than you were ever able to travel before, apart from when your parents would take you somewhere. I used to be on my bike. That was about the range that I had and you sort of had a time limit and uh, physical limits as to how far you could go on your bike. So getting a car licence is then able to let you go much further and it's able to make your friends go a lot, much, a lot further as well. They can, if they don't have car licences, they can now drive with you and go somewhere else. It has other benefits. It, uh, it gives you the opportunity to maybe start dating without your parents tagging along and that was one of the sort of driving forces for me for getting a car licence. I didn't get my car licence until I was 19 because uh, I didn't really see much benefit of it. But as I got a bit older, the, the urge came more strongly that uh, members of the, of the opposite sex were attractive and so that was one of the driving forces for me. Uh, but it also gives you the ability to do certain jobs as well. So it's a important development in most people's lives. It's one of those things that we look forward to. Uh, And it's the same with baptism in the Christian life. It's an important development. It's something that is one of those things that comes with being a Christian. There's certain things that start to occur once you become a Christian and baptism is one of those. It's an important development in a person's life in their walk with the Lord. And so this morning I'm actually going to break out of my series on John's Gospel which is what we've been doing if you're regulars for the last couple of weeks because we're having a baptism this morning and I thought it'd be good to have a look at what the Bible teaches about baptism. I've been amongst Anglican churches at different points in my adult life and so I've had to sort of restrict myself and respect in the institution that I was within uh, from going on about baptism. But now that I'm amongst uh, some people who are more familiar with my understanding of baptism and may be more appreciative of that, I thought I'd I'd have a go and uh, let's go with uh, what I've been keeping held up for quite a while. So that's what you're getting this morning and uh, it seemed a good opportunity to do that rather than continuing my series in John's Gospel which we'll be resuming next week. So looking at this, I thought I'd ask a series of questions about baptism ask a series of questions because that is what we do with most life developments and that's what we do with cars as well, getting getting your car licence. We ask firstly, who is eligible for a car licence? Not everyone's eligible for a car licence. There's certain requirements, there's certain health requirements and there's certain age requirements as well. You've got to be 16 to get your L's, you've got to be 17 to get your P's. There's certain age requirements. Not everyone is able to get their car licence. And so it is with baptism, we ask the question, well, who is eligible for baptism? Who's eligible for baptism? Well, Baptists believe that the people who are eligible for baptism have to have done certain things in their lives. They have to have done certain things. And so we'll have a look at those now. My first main point then is who is eligible for baptism? What, are they, what do they need to do? And so if you'd like to open those Bibles to chapter 8 of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 8, 
of Acts, we'll look at the things that you're meant to do before baptism. What Baptists believe you need to do before baptism. Acts chapter 8, verse 12. Acts 8, verse 12. We've got Philip there preaching and it reads, But when they, the people who heard Philip, when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptised, both men and women. What happened before they were baptised? They believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. First thing you need to do is believe. Is there anything else you're meant to have done? Well, go a bit earlier in Acts chapter chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, we've got Peter preaching this time. Peter preaching to the Jews. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. They say in verse 37, when the people heard him preaching, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And what does Peter reply? Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. What are you meant to do before baptism? Repent. You're meant to repent. You're meant to personally repent before you're baptised. Anything else? Well, verse 41 of the same chapter, verse 41 we see something else they, they do before they're baptised. Those who accepted his message were baptised and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. You're meant to accept the message of God. You're meant to accept the message that you're to believe in Jesus Christ as a payment for your sins. And then you are baptised. Anything else? Well, one last thing that we see in the New Testament that people do before they're baptised and we see that in Acts chapter 10. Same book of the Bible, but chapter 10... Acts chapter 10, we've got Peter at Cornelius' house and he finishes speaking to them and then the Holy Spirit comes upon them and then Peter says at the end of verse 46, there's a new sort of paragraph if you've got an NIV, then Peter said in verse 47, can anyone keep these people from being baptised with water? Can anyone prevent them? Why can't anyone prevent them? He says in verse 47, they have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. These people have received the Holy Spirit, therefore they're eligible for baptism. And so that's what we as Baptists believe you need to do before you are baptised. You're meant to believe in the message, you're meant to accept the message, you're meant to uh, repent of your sins and you're meant to have received the Holy Spirit. We look for signs in people's lives that they have received the Holy Spirit. What is one of the big signs that someone's received the Holy Spirit? Well, if they're affirming Jesus Christ as Lord. No one can say and mean it, that Jesus Christ is Lord apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts. So we we as Baptists believe that we need to see these things in a person's life, that they need to affirm these things before they are baptised. And so that's of course why we reject the baptism of Presbyterians and Anglicans and other paedo-Baptists of Protestant denominations is we don't see their baptism as an official baptism that uh, when it comes to infants because the infants haven't been able to repent of their sins. We can't see that. We can't see whether they've repented. We can't see if they've believed. We can't see if they've accepted the message. We can't see if they've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And so, because this is the way that it seems to run in the, in the Bible, we then say, well, the infant baptism isn't a, a real baptism. And so we respect our Anglican brothers and sisters and Presbyterian brothers and sisters, but we say that their baptism isn't the one prescribed in the Bible. So that's the first question is, how do you, uh, is, who is eligible for baptism? Second question is, how do you get baptised? 
and that's what we ask about getting a licence, a car licence. We say, how do you get one? I want one, how do I get one? And of course you have to go to the RTA and you have to get the the learner's book and you have to read through that and you have to do the tests and then you have to do the, when you get P's, you have to go for your, do that most scary thing of a reverse park, which I haven't done since I uh, got my, my P's. So, uh, but you, you have to do one. It's how do you get your car licence? And so it's true with baptism. We have to ask the question, well, how do you get baptised? I want to get baptised. I see it there. I've repented. I've believed. I've accepted. I've gotten, received the Holy Spirit. How do I get baptised? Because there's different modes that people have said is acceptable for baptism over the, over the church history. And one of those modes, of course, is sprinkling, isn't it? They, put, they, they sprinkle water on or they, they do a cross with water on the person's head. Is that an acceptable form of baptism? Well, there's a reason why Baptists immerse people. They dunk people in the water. And there's a couple of reasons why they do that, why we go fully under and we say that's what is required if we're to have a, a baptism the way the Bible prescribes. The first reason is, of course, that the word baptise actually means immerse. It actually means dip. The Greek word baptizo, where we get the word baptise from, it means dip, it means immerse. Is this, do we get this just from the Bible? No, we see it in other parts of, of Greek writings around the time that the Bible was written. And I've got a few examples. So these are coming from outside the Bible. And I think they make clear that baptism means to immerse. The first two are from Josephus, a Jewish historian. And he writes about ships being baptised. He writes, For as our ship was baptised in the Adriatic Sea, we that were in it, being about 600 in number, swam for our lives all the night. Their ship was baptised. What did they do? They swam for their lives. Was their ship sprinkled? It would be just like having some rain at sea. They wouldn't have to swim for their lives. They'd be fine. Baptised there means quite clearly it was sunk. It went completely under and they had to swim for it. That's one example. Another example is being swords being baptised. Now this is a bit gory, this one, but I thought I'd throw it in. Swords being baptised. We have from Josephus as well. He said... He baptised, the person that he's speaking of, he baptised his sword up to the hilt into his own bowels. Now, uh, would that make sense if we translated that? He sprinkled his sword up to the hilt into his own bowels. No, it doesn't make sense. The person has obviously baptised their sword, immersed their sword into themselves. that's out there for the guys, that one, the bowels, I'm guessing, from reactions I'm getting on people's faces. Anyway, last one. Uh, this isn't from Josephus. This is from Aesop's Fables. I've never looked up Aesop before, but I believe he wrote quite a few stories involving animals. And he, his works were translated into Greek, and so we have them today. And he uses the word baptise as well. His one is with dolphins baptising people. It says, The dolphin vexed at such a falsehood baptising him, killed him. The dolphin baptised someone and killed the person. Now, I understand that dolphins are pretty friendly usually, so this isn't a, a typical occurrence, but the person, the dolphin there, vexed at such a falsehood, baptising him, killed him. If that was to be translated sprinkling, would that make sense? The dolphin vexed at such a falsehood, sprinkling him, killed him. No one's being killed by sprinkling that I, I'm aware of. No, the dolphin drowned the person. He immersed the person underwater and so that's what killed the person. So there we see the word baptizo being used 
in other senses, to clearly mean immerse, to go under. And so that's when the Bible uses it as well, we believe that it's saying immerse. The person was immersed in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. But is that the only reason? Well, we see evidence that it means immersion in the New Testament as well in Acts chapter 8, that passage we've already looked at once before. Acts chapter 8, the passage that was read out, we see Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch there and in verse 36, they're travelling along the road. Philip's been explaining to the Ethiopian eunuch and he says, as they travelled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptised? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then what happens? Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptised him. When they came up, out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. We see a movement there out of a chariot, down into water and then up out of water. And so that implies to me and to most Baptists that there is going down into the water and up means immersion, that they had to go down into a body of water to go fully under. If sprinkling was acceptable, well, this Ethiopian eunuch was a say there, he's an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. He would have had a pretty fancy chariot, my impression is from that uh, title there. And he would have surely had some water in the chariot and if he's off being busy somewhere, it would have been made sense if it's just sprinkling that he'd just get some water and, and do it inside the chariot. But no, they stop, they go down into the water, up out of the water and so there we get some evidence that it means clearly immerse. And then we also, as Baptists, like the immersion when it comes to baptism as well because we see that it it helps with the important symbolism of what goes on at baptism. Baptism is an outward symbol of something that's gone on inwardly. And what is that? What's gone on inwardly? Well, one thing that baptism symbolises is the purification that's gone on inwardly. We've been purified, we've been washed away of our sins. Our sins are no longer inside us. We believed in Jesus Christ and we no longer have sins and so we have been washed. And so it is when we go into the water, there's a, there's a, a, a link there between washing, that we're getting purified and so we go completely under. And in the early church there was actually prescriptions for different baptisms and they would say running water is best. If you can go out to a river, it's best because the dirt doesn't stay with you in the bathtub, which is one of the reasons I don't like baths. But you, you go, uh, you, you have the dirt washed away. You have running water is best. And if you can't get that, well then, you know, get a bathtub out. But it's important that there's this symbolism going on of purification. And we see this actually linked in the New Testament in Acts chapter 22. Same book of the Bible that we've been looking at. Acts chapter 22, verse 16. reads, and now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptised and wash your sins away, calling on his name. Within that one verse we've got the the symbol of baptism and the symbol of washing your sins away linked together there. And so we think it's important that we get immersed fully under so we're fully cleansed. It's not just our foreheads that are cleansed, it's our full body to immerse ourselves into that symbolism of being washed. But there's another symbol as well that comes along with it that's linked with baptism and that's our link with Jesus in his death, burial and resurrection as well. That we have died to sin in Jesus Christ. That's what's going on inwardly. We have died to sin through what Jesus did at the cross and so we have a symbol going on that symbolises that death and burial of Jesus. And we see this in the passage of Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, 
the passage that was read earlier. Romans chapter 6, verse 3 says, Or don't you know that all of us who were baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And so the baptism that it's speaking of there is the one of being baptised into Jesus' death, the symbolic one that's going on inwardly, but it's a good picture that we have of being immersed into the water because going into water is somewhere that you can't survive for very long. Even, even the guys in the submarines, I mean, they've got plenty of air, but I believe they have to come up periodically or have pictures of nature shown to them. It's not a very healthy place to live underwater for any extended period of time. And you generally would die if you stayed under there for long enough. And so we see that of going into the water, that we're dying, we're going into a, a hostile environment there, we're dying, and we're being buried in the water around us, and then we come back up out to breathe again and so to new life. And so that's what's happened inwardly when we become Christians. We die with Jesus Christ, we're buried with Jesus Christ and we are as good as raised to life. We have newness of life in our lives here on this earth and then when we die physically we will have newness of life in heaven for eternity. And so there's a good symbol going on there as well. That we, uh, that we have died with Jesus Christ. And so that's why Baptists like immersion as well. So that, of course, then is why we reject the baptism of uh, the Anglican and Presbyterian churches as well and other Protestant denominations who may be our brothers and sisters in Christ and part of the invisible church, but we don't recognise their baptism as a true baptism because it doesn't involve immersion, which is the way that Jesus seems to prescribe it in the Bible. Is there anything else... How do we get baptised? That question of how we get a car licence, how do we get baptised? Well, there's one other thing that we need to do and that is to get baptised in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Matthew chapter 28 tells us this. Matthew chapter 28. How do we get baptised? Matthew 28, verse 19. Jesus speaking to the disciples says, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them... How do you baptise the person? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now this isn't a big issue uh, for, uh, between Christian denominations generally that most Christian denominations all baptise people into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit so that part of the baptism we don't reject but we do have to reject it with some Christian cults we have to be aware of as well so things like Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses their false understanding of the Trinity and who the Son is means that their baptisms, which they do do baptisms, their baptisms are not valid in our eyes as well. So we reject them based on if they immerse the person, it still wouldn't be okay because of who they've been baptised into. The correct formula hasn't been said of baptising into the name of the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit. Last point, last point, last question is why do we need to be baptised? Why do we need to be baptised? Why do we need to get a car licence? Do we need it for work? Is it such an important development in our lives that you can't be a person without a car licence? Can you live and be without a car licence? Well, yes, of course you can. You can live without a car licence. And I've got a friend who, whose husband hasn't got a car licence at all and she, uh, he's always saying to her, wouldn't it be great if we could travel round Australia, we could drive round Australia and see everything in Australia? And she says, it's all right for him to say it, 
because he doesn't have to do any of the driving. He'll do all the looking and I'll do all the driving. But there's an example of someone who is a valid person without a car licence. And so the same question needs to be asked of baptism. Why do we need to get baptised? Do we need baptism to be a Christian? Why do we get baptised? Well, the first reason we get baptised is because Jesus commands it. Jesus commands it. And we saw that in Matthew chapter 28, a passage we just looked at. That's an imperative there. It's following on from another imperative there of making disciples of all nations and then baptising them is taken as an imperative as well as a direct command from Jesus that we need to do, we need to have done to us. Baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And that's why we're very sensitive to this as Baptists. We recognise that this is a command of Jesus Christ and with any of God's commands we want to make sure that we're doing them as faithfully as possible. We want to know what he's commanded and how we are to do it. And so we look at the scriptures and we try to find out exactly how it needs to be done because we don't want to mess around with Jesus' commands. Who are we to redefine one of Jesus' commands? And so we want to be as faithful as possible to scripture and make sure that we are fulfilling his commandments as best we can. And that's why we see it as such an important issue. But there's another reason why we get baptised as well, it's an important public testimony. It's a testimony as to what has happened inside your life. For Christians to come up and say, I am now a Christian, the proper way to do it is through baptism. We make a public statement to the church that we are now a Christian and we do it through baptism. And so then we are accepted into the church community. Every visible church, every Christian denomination, except for the Quakers as far as I'm aware, They all require baptism to get into the church. You can't go to an Anglican church and vote in one of their vestry meetings if you've never been baptised in your life. You need to have been baptised. They're very restrictive, as is all Christian denominations, as to who can vote at their various meetings, who can be a member of their church, who is a recognised member. And they all require baptism as membership. And so that's important for a Christian to do, to be recognised by the other members of the church, that they are now one of them, the rite that you go through is baptism. But it's also a good testimony to unbelievers. It's an important testimony to believers, to the rest of the church, but it's an important testimony to unbelievers. And we see that in the Bible whenever they're out baptising, other people come along and people see what's going on and they ask questions. What's going on here? And so they do it in very public places. And that's why I think it's important that we don't have baptism as one of those things that members only, no one else can come in here today. It's just for members to witness this historic moment in someone's life. No, it's important that non-Christians are welcome and can see what's going on and they can ask questions. Why are you doing this? What's the meaning of it? It's important that non-Christians are available to see that this is happening. And so it's it's quite reasonable. We were at a church uh, last year, year before last, yes, uh, where they were they, they would go down sometimes, they were near a beach and they would baptise people in the waves. And of course that would rouse all kinds of questions, if, particularly if you're doing it between the flags, wouldn't it? And so it's an important testimony that you can make to unbelievers. And so it's quite reasonable for churches to do that sometimes, to go out to a, a local area of water and baptise people there because it's a great witness. I'm sure you get some questions at least from some children who'd be at the beach. What are you guys doing? And that'd be an important opportunity that you could make the most of. But if you're a non-Christian and you're here today, we welcome you along and this baptism is for you as well. It's not just for us to witness Jill's baptism but we're, we welcome non-Christians along to witness it as well. 
But then the last thing I want to then look at with why do we get baptised then? It's an important command, it gives a testimony, but is it absolutely crucial to being a Christian? Does it save us? Do you need to be baptised to be a Christian? Well, according to Roman Catholicism, they say yes, you need to be baptised to be a Christian. From their catechism, their catechism says, which among the sacraments is the first and the necessary one? And then the answer, holy baptism is the first because one cannot receive any other sacrament if one is not baptised. It is the, and in bold type, most necessary sacrament because no one can receive remission of original sin and attain salvation without baptism. This is the general rule. You cannot attain salvation without baptism according to the Roman Catholic Church. It is an absolute requirement. You need to do it or otherwise you aren't a Christian. You need to be baptised. Of course this has meant that in church history we see Roman Catholics often baptising people against their will because you're saving people. I mean if that really was the case I'd be up for that as well. If you could force someone to be baptised and you save them from eternity in hell you'd want to do it. And so they'd hold swords up to people's throats and make sure they go under because they're literally saving people. Is that what Protestants believe? Do we require Jill to be baptised today so that she will be in heaven? Is it absolutely necessary? Well as Protestants of course we don't believe that this is the case and we believe it for one very good reason that we see someone in the New Testament who was never baptised but is confirmed as having a place in heaven and that is the thief on the cross. Luke chapter 23 Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23, verse 42. We've got Jesus being crucified there. We've got two criminals on either side. And one of the criminals says to Jesus, he's up there on the cross dying, and he says, verse 42, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He believes who Jesus is and he wants Jesus to remember him. And what does Jesus say? He says, uh, 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 no, but... We can't baptise you, so you can't get in. Now what does he say? Verse 43, Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. We do not need to be baptised to be a Christian and that's why we recognise that there are so many people outside the Baptist denomination who are Christians and who are our brothers and sisters in Christ and we can work together with them to advance Christ's kingdom and enjoy fellowship with them. Just because they haven't been baptised the way that Baptists baptise people doesn't mean that they aren't Christians. They're still brothers and sisters in Christ and we should always love them as that, as brothers and sisters in Christ. But we do want to make sure that we stay faithful to God's commands and it's an issue of conscience and that's why as Baptists we meet together and we affirm different commands together that we believe are true and faithful to Scripture. Just as any other church believes certain things that you can and cannot do, and they look at scripture to see those things, sexual immorality, all those kinds of things. Churches will discipline people for them and kick them out of membership for those reasons. Same with baptism. We think this is one of Jesus' commands, an important command, and we have to be careful about uniting together to follow his commands as faithfully as possible, and that's why we do it. But we still respect that there are other people who are outside uh, our Baptist denomination who are definitely believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and we can unite with them to advance the gospel in different ways. But we want to gather together as Baptists to be faithful as much as we can. 
So then that leads me to one last question that's kind of come out of these questions, not directly related to baptism, but the question that arises is, then what does save us? What saves us? If baptism doesn't save us, if no religious practice of the church saves us, if taking part in communion, if coming along to church each week, all those things, being a part of the the community here and maybe going on church rosters, those kinds of things, they don't save us. If doing good works just in general in the community, do they save us? Helping your, your neighbours, being kind to people at work, loving your family, being faithful to your husband or wife, do those things save us? Do any of those good works save us? Are they all like baptism? Well, yes, they are. All our good works, all our following of God's commands do not save us. None of those things save us. What saves us? What saves us? Romans chapter 6 is very clear on what saves us. That passage we've already looked at, we had read to us. Now we'll look at one more time. Romans chapter 6, what saves us? Verse 5. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. How do we get resurrection the way Jesus Christ was raised from the dead? It's being by united with him in his death. Verse 6, For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. How do we get freed from our sin our sinfulness that doesn't let us into heaven but instead earns us hell. How do we get freed from it? By that baptism that does save, the one of the Holy Spirit, the baptism into Jesus' death. That's the way that you get saved. You've got to believe that Jesus Christ died for you. That's the only way to be saved. So what place then there is for good works? What place then is there for baptism? Why should we bother if the only thing that gets us into heaven is believing in Jesus? Why don't I believe in Jesus and then just sin all I like and it's okay because I believed in Jesus? Why should I try and follow Jesus' commands? Well, Paul answers this for us in the same chapter. He says in verse 1, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Every time I sin, God's merciful and that means his grace is even bigger, so why don't I keep on doing that? What does Paul say, verse 2? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? If we have truly believed that we have been baptised into Jesus' death, we should abhor sin. We shouldn't love sin. We shouldn't want to sin. It says, we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? And then we go down to verse 11. Same thing being investigated there by Paul. Verse 11, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. You've changed. You're alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, go on sinning as much as you like. No, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master because you are not under law but under grace. So although we believe that baptism doesn't save anyone, it doesn't get us into heaven, no good works can get us into heaven, we believe it's important to do because it is one of Jesus' commands and as a result of us being saved, 
we then get baptised and the good works follow the faith that comes first. Faith first, then good works. Never good works, then heaven. Never good works, then faith. It's always faith first, then good works and heaven comes from the faith. It doesn't come from our good works, it doesn't come from our baptism, it doesn't come from any other religious practice we might want to do. And so that's the most important question here this morning for you. It's not, you know, how good a person you are. Have you been baptised? How do you get baptised? You know, it is, are you saved? Are you saved? Are you trusting in something other than Jesus' death for your salvation, for heaven? Are you trusting in maybe you were baptised many years ago? Maybe you come along to church each week and take part of the Lord's Supper. Maybe you're a very active member in the church. Are you trusting in that for your salvation? Are you trusting in your good works, that you're a good person in the community and everyone loves you and so God will love me too. I do some bad things occasionally but they really get our way by all the good things I do. Are you trusting in the good that you do instead? Because that will not save you. The Bible is clear. You need to believe in Jesus' death for your salvation. Nothing more. That is the most important question this morning. And I hope all of you have answered it with yes, I believe in Jesus' death for my resurrection. One day I will be in paradise because of Jesus' death and nothing that I did, no baptism, no Lord's Supper, nothing else, just my belief in his death. Let us speak with him now. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Jesus' death that nothing that we do is worthy of being held up to you to get us into heaven. So much of our lives are tainted by sin and we need Jesus Christ and his righteousness, his good works to be for us. We pray that we'll continue to believe this each day, that we'll never be tempted to start trusting in our own faithfulness, our own baptism, something that we've done, but that we'll always be reminded that it is nothing of us but all of you. We pray for anyone here this morning who does not know this, who has not accepted, who has not repented, who has not believed, who has not received the Holy Spirit. We pray that they will turn they will recognise their sinfulness and they will come to a saving knowledge of you and in good time be baptised. And we pray this in your son's precious name. Amen.